The first reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposed payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if he, if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man, as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. 
but with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know what you make of that Good Friday reading. It's quite familiar, I guess, to some of us. Uh, maybe you find it a little uh, old, a little tired. Uh, you've heard it so many times before. Well, as we just have a couple of brief reflections on a, a couple of passages, I hope that you'll find with me, as I've been looking through it again, that there is such a richness, such a depth, such a relevance uh, in this story. Obviously, I can't cover everything in such a profound reading, but I did just want to look at uh, a few things to help us uh, navigate this passage. And what struck me first of all in, in that first reading as we see three sort of trials, if you like, three different courtrooms with the chief priest, with Pilate, with Herod. And what struck a lot of people before is how quiet Jesus is. He says very little at all in any of those courtrooms. He says absolutely nothing before Herod. When I was training for ministry in sort of pastoral counselling courses, one of the things they said was, if you leave space, if you leave a bit of silence for someone else to talk, often what's under the surface will be revealed. Well, Jesus' silence here does reveal what's in the human heart, what's in the heart of the chief priests and Pilate and Herod. And I'm sorry to say it's not necessarily the most pleasant of pictures. Jesus' silence reveals a darkness in humanity's Hearts. Lots of ways we could see that, uh, but I'm just going to concentrate on three, one for each of the groups that Jesus stands before. Three darknesses, three sets of injustice. In courtrooms, on trial, where truth and justice should be what people are seeking and searching for, uh, and yet we see falsehood and injustice all around. First, there's the darkness of prejudice, which is what we find when Jesus, in verse 66, comes before the council of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. Their questioning is not detailed investigation looking for the truth. They, they really just ask, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And all they're looking for in this questioning is, is enough of a confirmation from Jesus that they can hand him over to be executed. Back at the start of chapter 22, we're told they're already looking for a way to kill him. They have prejudged Jesus. They are prejudiced against him. It's obviously an unjust way to behave when you're sitting in a courtroom to prejudge a situation. It's an unjust uh, way to behave generally. That's why the word prejudice does sound so ugly. And here is Jesus, unjustly treated by prejudiced judges. And even though he doesn't really give them much of an affirmation back in verse 70, you say that I am, it's enough for them to whisk him away to Pilate 
convinced that they have enough evidence to put him to death, which is what they wanted all along, what they'd already decided should happen. The injustice of prejudice, the darkness of prejudice. Uh, then there's the darkness, the injustice of being deemed expendable. Pilate is a consummate politician. Um, and like a lot of politicians, or, or at least our cynical view of politicians, he is willing to regard an innocent man as expendable for the sake of keeping the peace. And that's exactly uh, what happens. Um, first of all, they change the charges before Pilate. Maybe you noticed that, that having asked theological questions in their own trial about whether he was the Son of Man or the Son of God, they trump up some new charges. Uh, he's subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, which wasn't true. Jesus said they should pay their taxes. He's starting a rebellion, a revolution, even though Jesus said he, he's not doing any such thing. And so when they say he claims to be a messiah, a king, although Jesus did claim that, that much was true, the kind of king they're presenting him as is one that's very, very different. And so Pilate, confronted with this man, realises that he needs to question him. But after even a short investigation, he says in verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate knows he's innocent of the things he's being accused of. And yet as the pressure is brought to bear, as the crowd comes into the scene uh, later on, uh, from verse 18, when, when Pilate is trying to release Jesus and the crowd say, no, release Barabbas instead. When public pressure is brought to bear, when he realises the civil peace, might be threatened. Pilate is willing, reluctantly perhaps, but willing to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Anything for the sake of civil order. Jesus is deemed expendable for the greater good. And that is a great injustice. The third injustice is being used as a commodity for someone else's enjoyment. And this is what we get as Jesus comes before Herod, verse 8 of chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Jesus is just entertainment value for Herod. Perhaps the most chilling and ugliest of all the injustices in many ways. And when Jesus won't play ball, they mock him and sneer at him and ridicule him, because that's all he's good for. He's just an object to be used for Herod's enjoyment. It's an ugly picture, isn't it? An ugly picture of injustice. But it's not just back there then that those darknesses, those injustices were seen. They're around us today, aren't they? The darkness of prejudice, we can see that in our world. If we're honest with ourselves, maybe within our own hearts sometimes even, we know we hold prejudice. The idea that the little people are expendable for the sake of society as a whole. There is that <clears throat> sense, that feeling that those in charge don't really care about us if we're not at the top with them, if we're at the bottom. 
we suspect that maybe if push came to shove, they would think we were expendable. Uh, and as for um, people being used as commodities for others' enjoyment, whether it's the huge amount of online pornography that there is, whether it's um, the, the stunning revelations of the, the Me Too movement, which show that kind of attitude alive and well in the top echelons of society, whether it's the more mundane, perhaps, uh, reality TV consumption, where people are wheeled out and laughed at, objects for our amusement and score. All those things are, are still with us. And maybe you're someone who suffered some of those injustices. Maybe you're honest enough to say, not only have you suffered them, but <laughs> you've been guilty of them from time to time. Well, here is Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus is God in the flesh. And so in Jesus, God knows what it is to be a victim of prejudice. To be a victim deemed expendable. To be a victim consumed for the enjoyment of others. It's not a very flattering picture of humanity. The Bible says that all of us are guilty of sin. We're all part of that darkness. And God knows that darkness because he became a man and was subjected to it. Good Friday is very relevant because it does reveal the darkness, which is a great problem for humanity. Fortunately, it doesn't leave us there. Because into this darkness we're going to see the words of Jesus. The second reading is taken from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, 
if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in our first reading, we saw that Jesus' silence uh, revealed human darkness uh, and the injustices that go with it, the, the astonishing thought that, that God himself, in the person of his Son, will be a victim of injustice. Uh, the darkness uh, weighed in on Jesus. But in our, our second reading, what struck me was the, the, the Jesus who'd been basically silent in on trial earlier on uh, now speaks. He speaks three times in this section. And each one gives us a glimpse of his light being brought into this dark situation. Uh, the first time uh, Jesus speaks is when he's being led to the cross. And in verse 28 he notices this crowd of uh, people, uh, many women who were mourning and wailing for him. And Jesus says, in verse 28, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Quite a mysterious uh, saying there. Uh, the clue is in that verse 31. Jesus is saying that he is the green tree, the green uh, wood. Now when you're preparing a fire, you don't look for green pieces of wood. You look for dry pieces of wood that burn quickly and well. Jesus is saying what he's suffering is illegitimate. It is unjust. He has not done anything worthy of what he has been, um, he's not done anything he's been accused of and he's not done anything worthy of the punishment he is receiving. He is not a rebel against the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus knows two things. He knows first of all that the days will come, just a couple of decades after this, when uh, Jerusalem will rebel against Rome. Jesus says if they treat me, even though I'm not inciting a rebellion in this way, how do you think they're going to treat you? And in AD 70, Jerusalem did fall to a brutal Roman assault. But I think there's a deeper meaning there as well, that Jesus is saying he is unworthy of judgment. He is not supposed to be bearing judgment. He is sinless. He has done nothing wrong. On another level, it's a pointer to the fact that though Jesus is sinless, all of humanity, the Bible says, have fallen short of God's standards. And so do we think we will escape? Now I said this was, these words of Jesus were bringing light to a dark situation. That might not sound very light, but what struck me 
was verse 28. What motivates this warning? Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. When I'm treated unjustly, I can have a tendency to turn in on myself, to self-pity. It's so unfair the way I'm being treated and it's awful the way so-and-so treated me. But here's Jesus. At the moment, we might expect him to be thinking of himself, and actually he thinks of others. This warning is not a bitter or vengeful warning from Jesus. It's a deep, sad warning out of concern and care for those around him. He is saying, are you ready? Are you ready for judgment to come? It brings light because it shows us in Jesus we have someone who not only knows our situation, not only knows what it is to be treated unjustly, but has concern for us, has compassion for us. And I think the way we know that that's the way we should take that warning is through the second thing that Jesus says. There's the light of concern and then there's the light of forgiveness. So in verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus says, as people were hammering nails into his wrists, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus practised what he preached. I guess in days like this, um, Practising what you preach is quite difficult, isn't it? We're all quite willing to give advice for what the rules and guidelines and regulations we're supposed to follow might mean. But it is harder to apply them sometimes. That We must always keep two metres from one another, but, but when you're in the supermarket and uh, there's that thing on the shelf and uh, you're not really willing to wait that long, you just brush past someone to grab it off the shelf, maybe coming a little closer than two metres. In more serious things too, if you're anything like me, you're much more willing to give advice than live by that advice. But Jesus said, love your enemies. And then the very people who were killing him unjustly, he asked for forgiveness for them. He practised what he preached. What a wonderful example, what a, what a wonderful thing to have one like this. He did claim to be a king, but a king who not only knows what it is to suffer injustice, but knows what it is to have concern for others and to bring forgiveness. If we are all guilty of that darkness we saw in our first meditation, if we are all bound up with it, we need light. And the light we need is for someone to come in and see our wrongdoing and offer us forgiveness for it. Now I don't know everyone watching this obviously, I don't know if you're somebody who has some deep shame or guilt over something you've done in your past and maybe you're thinking well if you really knew though, what I've done is too much, I've gone too far. Jesus offers forgiveness to the very people who kill him, those people who murder the Son of God. If you offer forgiveness to them, you can offer forgiveness to anybody. 
He can bring light into any darkness. And the third thing Jesus says, the light of concern, the light of forgiveness, and then the light of hope. As he's crucified between two thieves, very famous story as one criminal um, starts hurling insults on him as well. And then verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him. He can see that Jesus doesn't deserve what he's getting. He can also see in Jesus a king. He talks about his kingdom. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That must have taken great faith to see that man bloodied and beaten on the cross and see in him a king, which is who Jesus claimed to be. Not the kind of king that uh, the chief priest made him out to be or Pilate thought he might have tried to be. But the king of God's king. The king of kings, the prince of peace, the one who brings light to a dark world. And then verse 43, the third thing Jesus says here. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Forgiveness for the wrongdoings in our past is great, but Jesus offers even more. The Bible teaches that that first Good Friday, Jesus was paying the price for sin, for darkness, for human injustice. All the ways we've treated one another badly and all the ways we've treated God badly. The Bible calls it sin. And it says that Jesus paid the price for sin. He got what sin deserves on the cross. So that he can offer forgiveness for those sins, but more than that, to offer us a future. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he says to the thief on the cross. It's something he, he can say to anyone who will come to him and say, Jesus, remember me, forgive me for my wrongdoings. I trust in your death to pay the price for my sin. The light of concern, the light of forgiveness, the light of hope. If Jesus' silence reveals our darkness, then, then Jesus' words bring his light. As I said at the start, I don't know if you find this Easter story very familiar. Uh, maybe uh, you're a little tired of it year after year after year. I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I guess we can feel like that. But when we dwell on who it is, God the Son in the flesh, who has come to suffer darkness, being, being thrown upon him, and yet respond with light. It's extraordinary. The novelist Dorothy Sayers uh, put it like this. The people who killed Christ, to give them their credit, never accused him of being a bore. They thought he was too shattering a personality and needed to be muffled up. The gospel is the most staggering drama that has ever come across the imagination of man. That God would play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man would play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him to be a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. We may call that exhilarating, we may call it terrifying. We may call it revelation, we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all.
Now, I know there's lots of talk about what the church should be doing at this time. Uh, lots of people think they should be taking care of one another and their members, reaching out in love to the community, and I wholeheartedly agree. I think those are fantastic things to be doing. But this Easter time, it is also our duty to tell this good news of the Jesus who came to face our darkness for us so that he might bring his light. Because it is the most astonishing news, and it is the centre and source of Christian hope. It's why we call it Good Friday. It's why we call it good news.